Welcome to Trinity Radio, and I'm very excited today because I'm joined not only with my regular co-host Jonathan Pritchett, but also Dr. Leighton Flowers. We are excited to be with you, and uh, we love you so much. You're one of our professors at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary, and if you would like to earn your seminary degree at any level uh, in your pajamas at home uh, using the computer, you can do that at trinitysem, trinitysem.edu. And in fact, I haven't told you this, Leighton, but if you go to the uh, Trinity Seminary YouTube channel, and just scroll down to like the third or fourth playlist there. You can listen to a whole lecture from Leighton Flowers and uh, a whole uh, conference lecture from Jonathan Pritchett and some debates and things like that. Yeah, but not talking about Calvinism. The, not talking about Calvinism. Yeah, he's talking about systematic theology, and I don't think what? he specifically gets into Calvinism. What? what? I, yeah, I, I, I never taught any course that didn't have anything to do with Calvinism. I only taught Turns about out you're Calvinism. a six-stream banjo, man. You've got it all. <laughs> all right, so today what we're going to do, uh, ladies and gentlemen, is I have of late been tackling a lot of TikTok videos where normal people are just throwing out their ideas about God. Now, that was my idea for Leighton, but it turns out we've got actually some heavy hitters that you've probably heard about before. And so we're going to look at those today, but I did find them all on TikTok. Okay, that was my goal. And we're going to get Leighton's thoughts on that, and we're going to talk about it a little bit. Uh, Leighton, if you don't have anything else, or Dr. Pritchett, we're just going to jump right in. We get rid of this idea that's pervasive in the evangelical world. Believing people are seekers of God. The Bible says that natural man does not seek after God. So where did he get the idea that all these unbelieving pagans are seeking after God? Paul, I hear it all the time. They'll say, well, my yeah. neighbor's not a Christian, but he's seeking. Yeah, I, the reason oh, people... You, are, there, I don't I, you, want to, you want to watch the whole thing before we jump in, but... No, that's I think fine. It, Go you, ahead. You, yeah, I think, you, I think what Pritchett was saying there, you get the idea from Paul... Um, I think it's was Acts 17, yes. where he said he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. Uh, for in him we live, move, and exist. And even as some of your own poets have said, for we are all uh, also his children. Um, and so, yeah, you either get that idea from Paul. Now, what he's obviously re referencing is is Romans chapter three that kind no of. one is righteous. Yeah, <laughs> which yeah, actually is Paul quoting from the psalmist. He's like a DJ who's taken First uh, Corinthians two, I think it's verse fourteen, and uh, Romans three ten, and kind of mashed them together. Um, you know, uh, first First Corinthians two says the natural man cannot receive things of the spirit, um, which is in a different context about a different subject um, talking about the Paul's talking about the deeper things of God, the, the, the deeper wisdom. Cause he, in chapter one, he was talking about, you know, Greeks seek the wisdom, but God's, you know, re doing the reversal thing with the foolishness uh, and the wisdom of the world being foolishness and the foolishness of God being wise. So in chapter three, the very next chapter of First Corinthians, uh, Paul says that the babes in Christ don't really fare much better about the wisdom that they talk about among the mature. They don't understand it any better than the natural man in chapter two, which is why they got, you know, 
milk instead of solid food. But, but you were going to say, Leighton, you thought maybe what Jonathan was referencing is that Paul in chapter three is referencing back to Psalm 14, I think. Is that what you were thinking of? Right. Which, which also he, he's using hyperbole there, obviously, because he talks about having asp under their lips and uh, other things that aren't literal. Um, yeah, we wouldn't expect, a, if you want to take that literally, we wouldn't expect that if you took cotton swab and went under uh, unbeliever's lips, you'd be able to find some actual snake right. venom there. Yeah. Paul's point yeah. in Romans well, 3 is not that no one seeks God in any sense whatsoever, mm-hmm. right? That's, mm-hmm. yeah. that's, that's just eisegetical pish posh. Well, it's more, it's more, it's more of the idea that no one seeks God in a such a way as to earn or merit their righteousness. No, no one is righteous enough in, in their seeking of God to, to merit their own way. Everybody falls short. Uh, not all of us yeah, seek God the way that we should. And they don't th- seek those... the righteousness from God. So they don't seek God with respect to the righteousness from God, which is why in verse 21 and following of Romans chapter three, God unveils it in Jesus Christ. It's, it's the apocalypse of Jesus there. And the, right. because no one seek, not neither the Jews nor the Gentiles, no one seeks God with respect to the righteousness of God. I mean, that's why he starts off saying there is none righteous. And that's that's kind of a polemic against the Jews using their own text. There's no one righteous because the righteous status comes from God and no one seeks the God in the sense of the righteousness from God, which is why God has to unveil it himself in Jesus Christ. That's what that's about. It's not saying that the lost person or the unbeliever doesn't seek God in any sense whatsoever. In fact, the Bible tells us that God places providentially everyone where they are so that they can perhaps reach out, you know, seek God. Perhaps right. reach plus, out. you know, plus, plus you think about it, Jonathan, you know, it just proof that we don't take the initiative to seek God doesn't prove that we can't respond positively when he, uh, through incarnation actively comes to seek to save the lost. That's the non sequitur of the Calvinistic conclusion here is that if I can prove somehow that men on their own initiative don't seek after uh, the righteousness that comes from God, therefore they can't uh, accept the righteousness that comes through Christ through the incarnation when he actively comes to seek to save the lost. Uh, it, again, it's just what, what is referred to as a non sequitur. It doesn't follow the, the, the follow from the premise. And so you've just got to kind of point these things out as, as Calvinists will often use proof texts out of their context, like the 1 Corinthians 2.14 passage you've already referenced, which is obviously about the deep things of God that even the brethren there in Corinth can't receive, apparently. Uh, the, the, the Romans 3 uh, concept of no one's righteous, yet in the very next chapter he says Abraham was righteous. Uh, why was Abraham considered as righteous? Because he believed in God. And so what Paul is saying is no one's righteous, therefore your only hope is to believe and trust in in God through his provision of righteousness, who is Christ. He's not saying uh, no one's righteous, no, not one, and oh, by the, by the way, um, believing in Jesus, that's righteous, and therefore because no one's righteous, nobody can believe in Jesus. That's, that's, that's not what he's saying. Right. It's, the same, that's, that's it's what, the same thing if you push these texts too far. I mean, you could even run roughshod against your own Calvinist theology in the sense of, uh, well, if no one's righteous, then every time the Bible says someone was a righteous man, it contradicts itself. Or, you know, the natural man can't receive things of the Spirit. Well, regeneration is a thing of the Spirit, so the natural man can't receive regeneration. Whoops! I mean, it, don't push it too far <laughs> and rip it from its context, or all of a sudden, you know, now you want to talk nuance when I bring stuff up. Okay, then let's talk the nuance. But, I mean, R.C. Sproul is a dear yeah. brother in the Lord, and I butcher text trying to speak Well, that's the memory. thing I wanted to bring out, you is know? I wanted to say as an apologist, yeah. I actually appreciate the fact that R.C. Sproul was apology. a classical apologist, unlike yeah. most Calvinists who are presuppositionalists, and I really appreciated that. 
And uh, also, they're just a, a treasure trove of things that he has said and done that are good for the yeah. kingdom. But that doesn't mean he's not wrong about this. Right. I mean, he's a... Uh, uh, but. Yeah, I mean, he's a dear brother of the Lord who's gone on to be uh, with the Lord and corrected in all of his theological errors. Yes, he may uh, not be a Calvinist now. <laughs> right. Uh, but, I mean, he did in his <laughs> career, whenever he talked about this, though, I mean, he would say things like Arminians are barely Christ or barely saved, and he would say things like God is molecules. If one molecule was <laughs> acting on its own, it would lay waste to all of God's plans, as if God can't handle a molecule he could. So, I mean, dear brother and Lord, very intelligent, but when it comes to Calvinism, yeah, keep going. Yeah. Assume that the pagan is seeking after God is because we look at that person and we see that they're seeking after the benefits that only God can give them. They're looking for peace of mind, for purpose, for relief from guilt and all the rest. And so we assume that therefore they're seeking after God. They're not seeking after God. They want the benefits of God without Him. Yeah, They're so seeking stop, stop after right the here. benefits that only uh, God can give. In Jesus' ministry, He went around uh, as, uh, as the divine broker on behalf of the divine patron uh, talking about the benefits, right? So if people do want the benefits of God, it's because Jesus Himself in His ministry is, you know, lay down your burdens, I will give you rest, you know. There, that's a know, benefit the forgiveness for sins and that's all, a benefit. yeah yeah all of, all of these benefits that jesus as the divine broke see we always talk about the 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 uh the theological offices of, of christ being um prophet priest and king but he also has sociological benefactor yeah he's Patron. the benefactor right. and the he's the benefactor and the broker and the benefit himself he's mm -hmm. all three of those things and so if if people are seeking the benefits that come from God, that's a result of people spreading the message of Jesus And that really Christ. sings in Ephesians chapter 1, which is often thought of as a Calvinist passage. But in reality, we find out there are all the more stuff we get along with Jesus. Yes, that entire exordium is just this over the, it's one huge sentence in Greek. It's just this over-the-top, ornamental, it's, it's Asiatic rhetoric, uh, talking about the benefits in Christ mm. that are conferred to the elect. Leighton, go ahead. Yeah, I, I was going to say, you mentioned my book earlier, The Potter's Promise. I use this illustration in that book, um, kind of touching on this very issue, is that, you know, people often do when they're first seeking after the things of God are, are seeking to avoid punishment because of fear, because fear is the beginning of wisdom. Fear has its place. Uh, they're, they're trying to get the rewards because if they think if they, if they do what God tells them to, they'll get blessings. And so, yes, they're doing what they're doing out of an immature relationship. And, and I likened it to my own relationship with my dad when I was a kid, you know, I used to mow the lawn when my dad said, Hey son, go mow the lawn. I would say, yes, sir. Because I was trying to say, yes, sir. One, uh, two, I knew that I would not get my allowance, my, my blessing if I did not mow the lawn. I also knew that he had a belt and he wasn't afraid to use his belt if I defied him, um, especially in that generation. They weren't afraid to use belts at all. Um, and so I, I feared the belt and I wanted the reward. And that's why I did what my dad asked me to do. Now, now my, my dad is obviously much older. He's retired now. Occasionally he needs help around the house doing different things, getting something out of the attic. And praise God, I'm not afraid of his belt anymore. Don't have any fear of him using that on me whatsoever. And I am not looking for an allowance. I'm not looking for payment for him. But when he asked me to do something, I still say, yes, sir. And I'll be right there. Let me help you. He didn't ask for much, uh, but he's a friend. Um, that, that relationship has matured. 
Um, yeah. and, and I think the same thing happens in our relationship with God. We may at first seek God out of fear, but true love drives out fear. Uh, I, I'm, I'm reminded of John 15, 15, where he says, no longer do I call you a servant, I call you a friend. Uh, goes right along with uh, Romans 8, 15, where he says, no longer do I give you a spirit of uh, slavery uh, or timidity, but of sonship, by, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So there's a maturing of the relationship from uh, one of a servant who just who is uh, in servitude, I'm going to do what you say because you're my master, versus I'm going to do what I do for you out of love for you as a friend, uh, as an Abba, as a father. Well, you know, Leighton, there's um, something about that that I've said a lot. I've said many times that I think goes right along with that is when I first saw my wife, I saw her across the student union building at Middle Tennessee State University, and I decided I would go talk to her, not because I knew anything about her or deeply loved her. It was because I thought I'd like to go talk to her. And it was, and so it was this fleshly reason that initially instigated the com the conversation, which I think frankly is part of the design. Men are supposed to be attracted to women and vice versa. But it was, it was, that was the, the impetus originally, but before too much longer, I started to actually really love and want to sacrifice for this person. Just as right, the situation right. changed from one that was earthly material and somewhat carnal with your father to one where you're, you're a friend of your father. You want to help your father. I think that's totally understandable. Yeah. And going back to the Ephesians, one thing, I mean, did the whole point about talking about saved by grace, that God is a gracious God. Well, that's the point because gracious grace language in the Bible has to do with patron client reciprocity. It's a socioeconomic model in the ancient Mediterranean world in which patrons would confer benefits. I mean, in fact, Zeba Crook's dissertation reconceptualizing conversion goes into a lot of detail. David De Silva and those guys talk about this a lot too. I spoke with David, by the way, this past week and, and he, uh, says that he'd be willing to come on the show this fall. So Fantastic. We need to have him on. Uh, because people need to understand this. The, the whole point uh, about patrons is to give benefits to the undeserving and even the ill-deserving, right? And so when you're, when you're talking about what Jesus was doing and what he tasked his disciples to do, it's to go around promoting the, the, the honor of the divine patron and to promote the benefits. that, that That's what grace is about. It's, it's about... It's about the, the gift, the benefit, the, 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 you know, the, the beneficence of the benefactor. It's about promoting his honor in exchange for all of these goods that you cannot secure on your own. And so R.C. Sproul's from uh, that era of, of evangelicalism. When, when you're in personal evangelism, what you're supposed to do is give your personal testimony. And what do you list in your personal testimony when we talk about the impact? The benefits. The things that have yeah. benefited okay. you. As, as, but now look, on the screen right now, what is on the subtitle for, for Sproul is they're seeking after the benefits that only God can provide, it probably says, or something like that. Okay, what if one of those benefits is belief itself, is faith itself? Is that where we're going next? Maybe we should keep playing. You ready, Leighton? Let's go for it. All the while they're running as fast as they can away from God. The seeking after God is no business of the pagan. But the seeking after God is the main business of the Christian. Apart from regeneration, apart from the changing of the heart by the Holy Spirit, we don't know Him salvifically. We don't know Him personally. We don't have a loving relationship with God. So we begin by understanding that by nature, the mind does not love God at all. 
and it will not love God at all unless or until God the Holy Spirit changes the disposition of our hearts, which He does supernaturally and immediately and sovereignly by the Spirit's work of regeneration by which we are born again. The minute you are born again, for the first time in your life, you are now disposed to the things of God rather than against them. Now you like to have God in your thinking rather than despising the idea of having God in your thinking. We are seeking to increase the love of God with our minds. And here's something we have to understand, dear friends, that regeneration is the necessary condition for loving God with your mind. It's a necessary condition. Okay, there we are. I, I, I don't <clears throat> disagree with a lot of that. Um, but it does seem to be a regeneration precedes faith sort of a... Well, yeah, and that's obviously yeah. bogus. There's not a single text anywhere in the Scripture that... Well, for, even for your listeners... Like Sam Storms would say that it is a logical necessity from the theological system and the available data, but it is not anywhere explicit in any text whatsoever. Uh, e even, uh, I think it's what in First John uh, 3, I think some people... I can't remember the... Off the top of my head. See, I'm as bad as Sproul is when it comes to <laughs> Bible versus memory. But I mean, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of Calvinists who will admit that there's no explicit text that teaches this. They say that it's an inference uh, from their other theological uh, points that they hold. But I, I will say that the I I take a slightly different approach. I understand if we get past the regeneration precedes faith, I don't necessarily disagree that once you are born again, you have a disposition. Yeah, but you have a new disposition towards Christ. But that I think is a result of faith because <clears throat> regeneration is a word that's used twice in the Bible. And we can debate whether or not what how, Paul's usage in Titus and, and Jesus's usage in Matthew are the same, or if they mean something slightly different, but, but like born again, language is primarily kinship language receiving a being born again birth is familial it's being placed into a new divine lineage as a child of god Re, the transformation language the metamorphosis language is like new creation language and stuff you find that in paul and those are romans he, 12 too for example yeah uh, and and all, you know kind of all throughout you know um Evangelicals have a habit of collapsing being born again and being a new creature, a new creation into regeneration. And then, of course, we lose something when we do that because the born again the, the language of Jesus in John 3, the new birth language in both James and 1 Peter 1, th those are aiming at kinship dimension that, that often gets neglected when you take Paul's language of new creation and transformation, the metamorphosis language, and collapse it into one thing. And so you're, you're not getting the full picture of both things. And, and of course, using the word regeneration isn't helpful because that Jesus's usage and perhaps Paul's as well in Titus three usage is really about is closely linked with the idea of restoration, like being restored to a prior state of affairs. So, um, and of course, Paul links right. that to the washing uh, with the water of the spirit and all so that. Let's move over to Leighton and see what he says about yeah. it. 
Well, I, I was just going to maybe explain a little bit to the audience. I know th the three of us have had discussions about these kinds of things th hundreds of times. And so we're kind of well-versed in the pre-faith regeneration concepts and all those kinds of things. But just for the listener who may be kind of tuning in for the first time to try to understand what, what it is Sproul is arguing for, he's basically arguing for the T and the I of the, the popular acrostic tulip. Uh, the total uh, depravity, total inability concept, which uh, Sproul refers to as radical inability, but basically you're born with your want or broken, R.C. Sproul will say. In other words, you can't want to receive the things of God because the very nature you're born with, your desires are so corrupt from birth that you will always hate the gospel, you will hate the things of God, and you will always reject the gospel appeal. Unless he is the I, the irresistible grace, or the effectual call is what it's sometimes referred to, which is what he's referring to when he says regeneration. So what he thinks fixes the T, the total inability you're born with, is if you were picked before you were born, that's unconditional election, and you're ir irresistibly graced, or you're effectually called, and that's what regeneration is. And so what Sproul is arguing is that you're born unable to want God unless he wants you, and if he does want you, then he will change your wanter. He will make you want him. And he will regenerate you. He'll give you a new birth that 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 makes you desire him. So he, he's not saying that people are being drugged into faith, kicking and screaming, or that they're being drugged into heaven against their will. He's saying that God is controlling their will. Their will what is falling from birth. The, to, but, but in John 6, for example, I've heard many Calvinists say that the drawing that we're talking about there is like a dragnet, dragging someone to a certain thing. But of course, that seems inconsistent, as you just uh, elucidated with Reformed theology. Uh, typically, we hear them say, no, 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 it's not like that you're against your will coming to faith. You are regenerated, and so you gladly and willfully come. Um, how do you make sense of that for us? Well, I mean, even in BDAG and other, uh, you know, language, first, you know, century language books in the, the Greek language, uh, admits that when, when drawing a sword, uh, which is an inanimate object out of its sheath, or fish, you know, even though they're actual animals or beings, uh, in that sense, they're being drug uh, as just objects. And, and the word helco is used in reference to dragging objects in that sense. But the word helco is also used in reference to drawing people. And, and that is more of a wooing or a drawing type of thing. But, you know, the difference between fish and swords and people are that people have wills that can resist. And so obviously we, we would, you know, have a difference in, in how we might understand that. So but the use of the, that the bigger term issue. Is, is elastic enough to account that it, this use does account for like uh, wooing, seducing, that sort of thing, someone. But, uh, right. uh, and, and it is used of inanimate objects, but you have to be nuanced about how you understand it based on what's being hell code, right? right. Basically, right. Yeah. Well, and then, and then obviously it's always brought into the discussion, you know, John 12, 32, that once he's raised up, that he will draw all men to himself. Uh, and so that, that seems to give some pushback to the Calvinistic reading. But even, even if we were to grant that God is uh, somehow effectually, irresistibly regenerating people uh, based upon John 6, 44, uh, it doesn't mean he's doing so unconditionally, because even in the context of that, he, he could be simply talking about, and this is the interpretation that I take, he could simply be talking about how he is giving to the Son uh, those who have listened and learned from the Father. And there's nothing wrong with the compelling nature of that, that verb in that case, because that would be people if I've got a right, Cornelius... Layton. 
Yeah, like Cornelius or Lydia People or who someone. Are already, the Jews who are already believing uh, because Jesus. Not all they, is, they, because they, not they, all Israel is Israel. Yeah, and they, well, and they, because they believed the Father, they believed Jesus, unlike the right, people right. you don't, you know, and so, they, they, they understood that Moses was pointing to Jesus. Yeah. If you go back to the prior chapter. Well, that's what he said in the prior uh, chapter. Yeah. You believe Je Moses, you would believe me. Right, right. right? And, and so, what he's saying here for anyone that's listening is the articulate or the understanding of this that some people have myself included is that what's being discussed here is this was a moment in history that is not the case now where jesus was in his earthly ministry and those who were already true god fears in israel and that's not everyone just like everyone at your church may not really be a christian just because they're going to church and calling themselves a christian not everyone who's israel is israel they may even be genetically israel but they that doesn't mean you know raise up stones here the children of abraham you know they may be genetic israel but that doesn't mean that they're the israel of faith so to speak the israel that is the, the descriptor for people that are in christ and you may have people here who were true worshipers in in israel during jesus lifetime who when they encounter jesus because they really are listening and learning from the father they're drawn to Jesus. And so when someone asks something like, well, how do I get drawn to Jesus? Well, listen and learn from the Father. Is yeah. a good, it a good way to get there? Right? Before you played the second part of the clip, you'd ask if faith itself was a gift. And I answer that question, yes. I don't know how Leighton, I'm not sure how. I answer the, yes, but I, again, in what sense is, is faith a gift? You mean it's a gift. And if we sense, go to Ephesians chapter 2, where it talks yeah. about the whole operation, you think yeah. the whole operation yeah, is a the, gift. Yeah, that you're saved the by salvific grace operation. through faith, and it's not of yourself, not from works. Yeah, so the, 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 the fact that salvation is by means of benefit, grace, this socioeconomic uh, system mm -hmm. of, of uh, patronage and reciprocity, that it works that way is itself a gift as opposed to being by works because you know if you receive a gift you can't boast about it right um if you earn something you can't boast about it because that's paul uses three metaphors um in in, in his writings he uses employment metaphor works wages stuff like that he uses the grace metaphor which is gift giving benefaction so you know socioeconomics of patient client reciprocity then he uses the the slave metaphor right he uses those, those are history those are all economic words right and so when someone says do you think that faith is a gift it's like yes but it's not like a necktie that god hands from you know father to child you know like your dad gives you an object it's that faith is a gift in the sense that that salvation operates this way as opposed to that way and we could say back to the marriage analogy or of me meeting my wife and wooing my wife and all of that um uh, that that too, like uh, there may be merit involved in that, at least more. Ob it may seem that way. But but putting that aside, it's a similar sort of thing. The whole operation is a beautiful gift. I didn't, you know, except in that case, maybe I did some things to merit it in some sense on an earthly level. Well, but it's well, similar I mean, with the relationship. God gives grace to the humble. That's kind of, a, <laughs> you know, well, I, that's Layton's thing. Well, Layton. as, as, we as, as, talk. as scholars have pointed out though, <laughs> why am I even here? I don't, I don't know. Why are you here? Layton? I, I just like listening out, to you two. I, that's that I'm learning <laughs> a lot. Keep talking. Both, <laughs> yeah. Grace can be both merited. Grace doesn't mean unmerited favor, unmerited, merited patrons can give to whoever they want to, whether they merit it or not. That's right. It's just, it's just higher honor when you don't give it to the deserving, 
the non-deserving, but the ill-deserving. Like human sinners have spurned God. The and who is that ill-deserving? The ill-deserving is the person who is not at the top of the hill saying, thank you for not making me like those wicked heathens, but like the one at the bottom of the hill who's saying, be merciful to me. Yeah, but the ill-deserving is basically anyone who's ever sinned against God. <laughs> right. so, so, yeah. He should be at the uh, bottom of the hill with a drunk. Right, right, yeah. All of them should. So, so it's, and, and, if you look at like Seneca and others, writers of the time, it's like those who give to the ill-deserving are of the highest honor. As yeah, opposed that's to better. The, right. It's, it looks so and much better. And it feels better. right, too. That makes sense of our internal sense of justice. Right. And so, um, but the thing about grace is that it's a something that you cannot secure on your own. That's the main thing. Merit and unmerit, God can give for grace to whoever he pleases for whatever reason he pleases. But the, You could merit something and he'd give you way more than what you merited. Yeah. The, the issue is you can't secure whatever it is the patron is giving you all on your own. And that's the main thing. The second thing is, is you didn't merit it because you're ill-deserving. So it makes God as like the most honorable of all patrons because he's giving it not just to the deserving, but to the ill-deserving. Yeah. If you actually, you can look up uh, congruent merit, um, uh, condign merit, and there's several articles about the different kinds of merit, even from more of a Catholic uh, the old, old Catholic, uh, uh, commentaries on the subject. But when I, when I talk about the gift, I always point out, we, we don't have anything that God hasn't given us. I mean, our ability right. to think and reason to understand, uh, faith cometh by hearing. Well, my ability to hear is a gift of God, uh, and hearing by the word of God, if not for the gospel, I, I wouldn't know to believe. How do you believe in one you have not heard of, uh, as, as Paul points out in Romans 10? So, yes, uh, I, I definitely have no problem saying faith is a gift. But the Calvinist doesn't need—the burden of proof is not to prove that faith is a gift for a Calvinist. The burden of proof is that faith is a gift irresistibly given to some people and withheld from everybody else. That That's the burden they have to prove. And so I have to always point that out, that the Calvinist thinks they have proven their burden by suggesting somehow that faith is a gift from God, when that's not the burden. They have to, they have to prove that it's a, an effectual or an irresistible gift given to some people and withheld by decree, sovereign decree from birth from everybody else who's apparently incapable of believing in this one truth that they need to believe in. They can believe any other uh, religion out there. They can believe in, you know, something from the Quran and fly a plane into a building in order to get 72 virgins. They can believe all kinds of wacky, weird, crazy stuff that's out there in the world. But the one thing they were born incapable of really believing is the one thing that God calls them to believe. And they can't do that by their, by God's own decree. I mean, he made people that way because of the fall. He punished everybody by making them born, unable to believe this one thing that they're required to believe in order to be saved and reconciled to him. It's, when you really think about that, that is just a really tough pill to swallow. To try to, you know, Leighton, it's like, it's really like the whole, all about that. It's like about the, the dead in Christ thing and saying it's it's like, what does a dead man do? He does nothing. Except, oh, wait, if you ask the Calvinist, they'll say, well, he does do things. He, he runs and jumps and talks and reasons. He even does some spiritual things. They're just all bad spiritual things. And morally, he does some good things. He's not as bad as he could be because God's restraining all of that. He could. He helps the little ladies across the street. He gives to philanthropic sort of things. The only thing. So what does a dead man do? It turns out the only thing a dead man can't do is the one thing that he's commanded to do, which is to repent and believe is basically in what order you're saying, to get right? life. And actually it's, it's, it's believe these things as John 20, 31 says, you know, I've written these things so that you may believe and that by believing you may have life. Notice the order there. You believe because you're a dead man. What is a, what is a dead man? What's your solution? Uh, 
Well, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in order to have life. Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 5, 40, you refuse to come to me so that you may have life. Apparently, Jesus thought coming to him was the solution for getting new life, whereas the Calvinist, like R.C. Sproul, seems to think you have to be arbitrarily or unilaterally given new life in order to come to Jesus. And it's just never the order of Scripture. Yeah, I mean, dead in, in Ephesians 2 is just one of many ways that Paul says the same thing all throughout the chapter. Dead versus alive, far off versus brought near, excluded versus included. <laughs> You know, uh, sickness. Let me just do all this good. as yeah, a good you know, resource you all, you, all hear, you all hear Calvinists often say, we're not sick, we're dead. Well, actually, the Bible uses both. It actually uses illness more often than it does deadness as, as an analogy. So you can't throw one out for the other. Well, if right. we would just do the follow the keep reading principle and try to understand what we're reading in the context in which it was given, this all is, it, it, it's people will read, a, because they're reading the Bible, they'll take a, 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 they'll zone in on a word and then go everywhere but, the text itself to find metaphysics and theological gibberish and drop it on top of the passage. And that clouds what they're actually well, trying to. The process seems to be, you believe uh, you hear and you believe, and then you're saved. Uh, John six forty says, everyone who believes on him may have everlasting life. John eleven twenty five, he that believes on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. John 20, 31. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Acts 16, 31, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Romans 5, 2, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into his grace in which we stand and we exalted a hope of the glory of God for you. Galatians 3, 26, for you all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And it goes on. I've got multiple passages here. Well, how? How does that happen? Well, Romans 1, 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God of salvation. First uh, Thessalonians 1 5, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power in the Holy Spirit. So it seems like in the Bible, what you seem to get throughout the New Testament is that you, you humble yourself. There's passages that tell us that. You hear the gospel, you humble yourself, and you believe. And how does that happen? Well, because the gospel is the power of God and the salvation. That's how that happens. Yeah. And the um, power of the Holy Spirit. Faith, the Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God. Word the power of, of the Holy Spirit convicting the world of sin and unrighteousness. Slayton. Yeah, well, sometimes I think the Calvinists get the wrong idea that in order for a gift, in order for the giver to get full credit for a gift, he has to give his gift effectually. And that's not true in any other walk of life. It's not intuitively true. If I were to give you both a gift and one of you were to toss it in the trash can and the other was to cherish it and use it, it doesn't change my character at all. It doesn't, it doesn't affect who I am. It doesn't affect my um, my, my uh, gratitude, I mean, the goodness of my heart and the benevolence that I have towards both of you to give you their gift, you, you are responsible for how you use the gift that I give you. And what you do with the gift has nothing, no bearing on my character or my goodness. Now, if I pretended to give one of you a gift that I really didn't give to you or something like that, then that would impugn my character. And that would make me look like I was being dubious or, you know, deceitful, de deceitful in some way to, to, to claim that I wanted you to have something I really didn't buy for you or something like that. And I think that's where Calvinism gets to. I, I think it, it, in their well-intended effort to give God all the glory for the gifts that he gives, they're actually making God look bad because they're, they're actually removing his, his well-intended offer to every single man, woman, boy, and girl by calling all to repentance and faith by suggesting that Christ really didn't pay for the salvation for all and that it's not really provided for them all because in order for him to really get all the credit, he has to not only give the gift and provide the gift, he has to also effectually somehow cause them to take the gift and to use it appropriately. And that's just not true in any other way of life. I think God should get all the glory for all the gifts he gives, even 
uh, when he gives a good gift to someone who squanders it and 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 uh, and squelches it or suppresses it, and, I think and, he should and, still be the one who gets the credit for the gift. And the reason, yeah, and the reason what you just said is exactly right and makes the most sense of our understanding of grace in the ancient Mediterranean world, where a, a gift has to be well received as well because it's actually dishonorable and shameful to reject it. And right? as for this notion, but it speaks no ill about the giver, the patron who tried to give a gift, whether it's an act of personal patronage, which is a direct gift to an individual or an act of public patronage where they throw a festival or they host the games or whatever. And someone decides I'm not going to go to that. Forget that person or whatever. It, it, that is an act of that. The, the public sees that as being shameful and it reflects nothing poorly whatsoever on the patron. No, the whole idea is that gift. you're yeah. shamed because of that. Right. And, and, right. um, this strikes me. I was thinking of how you're talking about what would actually be a problem is if someone acted as though they were offering salvation to everyone or, or whatever it is, and then they aren't. And this makes me think of D.A. Carson's thing about the three kinds of love that God, God loves people salvifically. Some people, the elect, he loves salvifically. He loves others in that, the, the you know, it rains on the just and the unjust. He waters their crops, that sort of thing. And then the third point, which I always thought was the most awkward, is he loves you in the sense that he takes a stance of love towards you. Um, but it's not the effectual call. It's the general call. And I'm thinking, what good does a stance of love toward me do if it's not effectual? You know what I'm saying? It's very odd. Yeah. Well, and it, it comes across as um, not genuine. Um, you know, and what kind of it's like David Hunt's book, you know, What Love Is This? Because there are a lot of Calvinists like MacArthur's even written on this. I know D.A. Carson, like you already mentioned, has written on this, trying to defend the concept and idea that God does have a love for all of his creation. Because I think they recognize that in order for Christ to be the one who fulfilled the demands of the law, that Christ had to love all of his enemies because that's the demand of the law. And therefore, for Christ to be the fulfillment of the law, this is an argument that MacArthur makes, by the way, in his book. Um, that Christ really did have a, have a genuine love for everybody. But then they try to separate out, there's two different kinds of love. There's a salvific love, is what they call it. And then there's this other kind of love, the rain and sunshine kind of love, that's not salvific. And, and then I think the question that David Hunt is asking, what, what kind of love is that? It, when, I, when I see love defined, it, defined by Paul in 1 Corinthians, that it, 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 it is, doesn't seek its own, um, that it that it's patient, that it's kind, that all the definition of the word love that we see in Scripture, self-sacrificial, um, that that doesn't describe the kind of of you know quote unquote love that God has for the reprobate, the non-elect in any way. Um, and like Jerry it, Walls it, said, exact, Jerry Walls is a controversial name, but when he spoke at Houston Baptist back when it was Houston Baptist a few years ago, he said. Uh, about this he said look what if a what if you had a a, a billionaire scientist who who was going to pay every, give everyone uh you know uh maseratis or what's that new mclaren or teslas or something you're going to have the best house you're going to have the best life everything's going to be awesome but at the end of it we're going to torture you for uh, an extended period of time and uh it's going to be awful and maybe maybe even said like you'll go to hell at the end of it or whatever we would not consider this to actually be love. Yeah, we would or, consider this to be... Or or Leighton's... Let's say Leighton's wife has a uh, needs a life-saving medical surgery that the insurance won't cover. And so here we are talking to Leighton. It's like, Leighton, I love you, man. And I'm going to pay for your wife's surgery because you know you're my friend and I love you uh, and I want to help your wife. So 
Uh, I know you're in Texas, but you have to be here in Braxton's office to get the money in the next five minutes. Yeah. That's Can you do awesome. that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, well, right. I mean, I, I, I do love you. I'm willing to do this, but. Maybe yeah. I can get a kinsman redeemer to serve proxy and come get it for him. <laughs> something like that. Yeah. All mean, right, let's you, go on you, to the next clip. When because you say we, I love you, but I'm going to give you something that's impossible for you to do. Right, right. You know, it's let's, just, let's go on yeah. to the next clip because we're still on the first clip. There's only okay. three clips, so stay with us, folks. Okay. But here's, uh, I don't know what this is going to be. God makes choices. Then you go down to verse 13, you see an illustration. Jacob, have I loved? Esau, have I hated? What? Jacob, have I loved? Esau, I hated. I even determined that the older would serve the younger. There's no injustice with God, is it? That doesn't sound fair. How can you make that determination before they're born? How can you choose okay, Jacob stop. and stop not there. Esau? He, he gets into a lot there on in Romans 9. And, and before we get too into it all, uh, I think we need to address the idiom of love and hate in the first century. Um, we know from, yeah. uh, I believe, John 14, where he says, if you're going to be one of my disciples, uh, you must hate your mother and father, your brother and sister, your, your wife, everybody else around you in order to be my disciple. Now, he doesn't literally mean to despise them and reject them or to condemn them to hell or something of that nature. If it comes What's down between me and them, you should side with me, basically. You choose me over them. That's exactly what the word means. It means I, I've chosen this one for honor. This one will be used for common purposes. This one will be used for the noble purpose. This one's carrying my seed. He's going to be the one who carries the seed of the Messiah and the the prophet. The prophecy is going to come through Jacob, who who, who is Israel. His name's changed to Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel come through his seed, not through Esau's. Now, does that mean Esau was hated and, and had no chance of salvation and all the Edomites are damned to hell before they're ever born? No, not even Calvinists believe that. In fact, God uh, even says to the, to, the, to the Israelites, do not despise Edom for they are your brothers. And he gives them land. He blesses them. He tells Israel two or three different times not to go through their land, to go around them because they have a blessing from God. And he does not bring a curse upon them until after they attack the Israelites, which goes back but to the promise. But wait a minute. But Those... wait a minute. Leighton, that sounds like he doesn't like emotionally hate them like I'm, like I'm led to believe in Romans 9. Exactly. Well, it, one, it doesn't have to do with him rejecting them, for, for rejecting them arbitrarily. Uh, and it certainly doesn't have to do with individuals being chosen for salvation or reprobation before they're ever born. And that's exactly the way the Calvinist applies it. That comes from Malachi. How did God say he hated he hated Esau or the Edomites? Tearing his I'm going to tear down, down your mountains. You're never going to rebuild. It's over. That that's not that's not like it was hatred in terms of I'm not going to do positive things for them. If anything, there's going to be negative but, stuff. Right. It's not just but, God slobbering with hatred like a comic book villain saying, "Oh, I just hate." It, it's certainly not about. Esau, the individual, but not even, he says, I'm just going to destroy you. Well, and that's a key element. I know, Leighton, you've got one in the chamber, but that is a key element to point out to people who've never thought about this or heard anyone talk about this before is it, it doesn't seem to be talking about the individuals of Jacob and Esau. When we get this language about loving and hating, you're right, that goes straight to Malachi chapter one. Yeah. And so um, it, it seems to be talking about well, nations of people. Yeah, I'm going to destroy this nation. Now, how much... You know, well, Leighton had one of the changes. There's a Let sense Leighton of go. hatred there, but it's not like the sense of is the nation that he's. Well, no, there's two the kinds of hate. Yeah, but it's not like yeah. like it, it's it's a judgmental thing. It, it, it hate hate here means a, I'm going to do difficult things to you. 
Uh, you could, right. I mean, maybe from, for uh, despise the nation that, that okay, collectively, but the nation, collectively the he's had enough yeah, and okay. he's going to tear, tear the nation down and they're never going to come back. That's, that's basically Malachi chapter one. Layton, are you present? Would well, you like to say something? Yeah. <laughs> well, what I was going to say is that like w with my debate with James White, his, his argument against that kind of thing is, well, Paul, his apostolic interpretation of Malachi. In other words, what he'll what say is he'll, he'll acknowledge what you're saying. Yes, in Malachi, it's obviously about those two nations. Uh, yes, it's, it's obviously the, the hatred or the anger of God is because of something they did, not just an arbitrary hatred, uh, like a reprobate before they're ever born kind of situation. Yes, we agree with that. But th what the way Paul is using in with his ability to, as an apostle, to apostolically interpret it, to introduce to you Calvinistic theology. The whole point about God's purpose according to election standing with, with these choices is Christ in, in Romans chapter 8, and when, when, when Dr. White likes to talk about Romans 9, he always starts in chapter 8, and I don't know how he doesn't see this. He knows Greek way better than the three of us. But the, that language of purpose is echoes um, those called according to purpose, or his purpose in English. Um, but it, it's, it's the um, understanding that, of course, Jesus Christ is to be the firstborn among many brethren, right? He is the preeminent one. He is the first. So it makes sense that in God's choice throughout Israel's history that it overwhelmingly comes through second-born patriarchs. That's what you have here in Romans 9. It's a history lesson, and God's purpose according to election is that, of course, that you know we all love God according to purpose, Romans 8, and it's it's he's the firstborn, he's the preeminent one, and of course the line of descent Paul traces through the secondborn patriarchs. That's that's what's going on here. Um, if you're asking a historical question, which Paul's addressing historical concerns about how the word of God has not failed, um, you come to the right answers about Romans nine. When you're asking metaphysical questions that Paul that care about, um, you're going to come up with different things because you're you're looking for metaphysics in all the wrong texts. Yeah, if you come into this text being taught Calvinistic theology and the understanding of Calvinism, it does sound like Romans 9 is supporting that. That's one of the reasons you've got to kind of drop those presuppositions before you read the text in order to, to, to exegete versus eisegete. Because if, if you go into this text believing that God selects some people for salvation, i.e. he loves them unconditionally before they're ever born, and he selects other people for reprobation, i.e. he hates them unconditionally before they're ever born, then that kind of sounds like what Paul is describing here when he talks about Jacob and Esau before they're ever born, did anything good or bad. Uh, he's loving one, he hates the other. I mean, it sounds like he's picked one of them to be saved, another one to be damned, and who are you to question God if he's done this? And if that's what he's talking about, then Calvinists have a really good point. But what if that's not what he's talking about? <laughs> what, yeah, if, what if the first four years of the Christian church, and their yeah, interpretation I mean, And there's actually, good evidence you know? that's not what he's talking about, because he was talking about the individuals of uh, Jacob and Esau, and he's talking about the older shall serve the younger. Yeah. Well, in the story of Jacob and Esau, I don't know that that ever happens, but we certainly see where Jacob, where the younger serves the older, when he bows before him multiple times as he's coming and gives him all these gifts. We certainly see that. I don't know where in the story we see the yeah, younger. Yeah, but if you're the type of Calvinist, you have to say <laughs> Paul's wrong about the older serving the younger, because mm -hmm. you would have to say he's, you know, that, that, that you'd have to say in Paul's mind, Paul really thinks that Esau served Jacob. And then you read the story and you're like, 
Okay. What? So either Paul's wrong, your understanding of the New Testament use of the Old Testament is wrong. Well, yeah. You, 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 ultimately, what you're saying is the Apostle Paul has to eisegete the Old Testament in order to support Calvinism. And, 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 I'm, and, and I'm saying, I guess, because he's an apostle, if you want to say he has the right to eisegete in order to get to his point, okay. But if you have an interpretation like we do, and by the way, some Reformed scholars do, because some of our exegesis matches up with some Reformed scholars, even though they may uh, still conclude the wrong things based upon their exegetical work. Um, if, if you have an exegesis that doesn't require for Paul to be eisegeting Old Testament texts, then doesn't that seem like the more accurate or the more likely interpretation? And, and that's why we're saying, if you're not even aware of what our interpretation of Romans 9 is, which most, most Calvinists, in my experience, are not. They have absolutely no clue as to how to understand Romans 9 in any other way than what John MacArthur and others have dished out to them over the years. Um, then I'm just saying you're not qualified yet to d discern whether or not Paul is talking about this or this translation because you haven't even taken the time to objectively study both sides. You don't know the you're, still in that, you're still in that mindset of going, oh, it only can be Calvinism, obviously. Yeah. That's all well, it could I'm, possibly be because that's all they've ever been taught or Paul even giving, listened to. This is the por portion, you know, I mean, there's an inclusio at the end of Romans chapter 8, I think, um, that ties it back to Romans 5.1. Uh, and then Paul starts a new section. So when they put in chapters and, and verse numbers, I actually did a pretty good job here in breaking up his argument because it starts, it, it's the reputatio portion to where he's going to respond to potential objections because the potential objection he's addressing is, okay, well, if everything that you said earlier is true, you know, uh, then how come so many Jews are unbelieving? And Paul is going through history from the patriarchs to the exodus to the exile to demonstrate what God has been doing through history and how that accomplishes his purposes, right? Uh, that's why it's not just verse 6, not all Israel is Israel, you know, that's that, that it's not as though the word of God has failed, because that's not just the key, but it, it go back to verse 5. The whole point is that Jesus descended, you know, according to the flesh, you know, but is also God overall blessed forever, amen, where Paul calls Jesus God in that day. And I know that some liberal critics squibble with that, but it seems like... We don't like, care, we're not liberal yeah. critics. And, and, and so... He's showing how both of this and God's uh, dealings in, throughout the history of Israel that, that has arrived to this present. And then he goes on to explain in the chapters, uh, the next two chapters, how this fits in with God's overall purpose to widen the scope for Gentile inclusion, because that's really the, the issue at hand here. And so when he's addressing these interlocutors all throughout the chapter, they're Jewish interlocutors, and they're probably uh, probably... He's probably recalling to mind his his debates in synagogues over these very topics, you know, yeah. and and so I, I I just I agree with Leighton that if you start with Calvinism, you're going to find Calvinism here. It's not that hard, but I don't see Calvinism anywhere in here. And I used to be a Calvinist, so you have yeah. to actually start with it and then introduce on top of the text a bunch of categories and and um, a bunch of points that you insist Paul's talking about when Paul's not actually talking about it. But yeah, you have to I think frame right it that, before you even exegete it to get Calvinism, because you're not really doing exegesis right. anyway. If you come away with Calvinism, you just eisegete text. But you have to put up, you have to present all of these things. Uh, this is about salvation. This is about how God picks individuals for salvation versus damnation. And all of this is just an illust a sermon illustration 
to prove how Calvinism works. God's redemptive so, purpose is through Christ. And have someone here who wrote a book on it. We could. We, we probably should go on to listen to a little bit more because he's going to get into what I just said. Yeah, go so, ahead. Layton, go you ahead have something else playing. you want to say before we move on to the next? No, yeah, keep, keep playing. I think he's going to get into more of what I was going to talk about anyway. So let let him play. For, let MacArthur talk for a little bit longer. That, that that's that's not fair. Here's God's answer from Exodus 33. I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. I make that decision. I decide to whom I will give mercy and compassion. It doesn't depend on the man who wills. It doesn't depend on the man who runs. It depends on God who has mercy. Verse 18, he has mercy on whom he desires. He hardens whom he desires. So the question is then, verse 19, how can he then find fault with me? I'm not even a factor. If he's making all the choices, how can he hold me responsible for rejecting? Because who could resist that sovereign will? That's your complaint. Uh, that's not fair. What's God's answer? Simply shut up. You have no right to ask that. That's what he says okay, in so many words. I do like his his straightforwardness that he is like it's like yeah, here's yeah, God's answer. Yeah. Shut up. But uh is that the question? Well, yeah, when when he says I have mercy on whom I have mercy again, this is one of those things is is Paul ex, exegeting or exegeting from Exodus 32 and 33 where he's quoting from and if you remember the story, uh, it, this is after the Israelites had built the golden calf and now Moses is coming as the interlocutor saying have have mercy on them, don't destroy them as you say you will, take me instead. And then in response to that appeal from Moses, he will say I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. In other words, the context of it is if it, it serves my purpose to show mercy to Israel, uh, it, then I will show mercy to Israel. As, I, as the sovereign, I have the right to show them mercy, meaning I don't have to destroy them right now if I don't want to. That's what mercy is. Mercy is not necessarily individual right. salvation. If I, if I want to let them live and continue to use them to fulfill my promise and to bring about my purpose through them, even though they're rebellious, then I have every right to do that. And that's, a, that's, a, that's, the, that's where he's quoting from. In that yeah, text. And, and, and Yahweh is saying that to Moses, at least Mo, Moses, you see, at the beginning of the chapter, this I wish myself could be a curse. You know, Paul is kind of cosplaying the new Moses here, right? Exactly. Yeah. Which uh, sounds like Jesus, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, he, he's kind of cosplaying the new Moses. He's like, I wish I could be a curse for my kinship, according to, you know, all this stuff at the beginning of the chapter. And then, of course, he's picking up from Romans uh, 3 5. You know, and following where he's talking about, you know, what are the, well, in the first first verse of, of chapter three, you know, Paul starts talking about, well, well, what advantage is there being a Jew? Well, in every way, you know, first they were given the, he never talks about second, third, fourth, or fifth until Romans nine, verse three. Then he goes, continues his list. So go back exactly to, right. you have to go back to Romans three, five through nine, back to the interlocutor who is always Jewish until you get to Romans chapter 11, where the Gentile says, um, uh, where the Gentile interlocutor says, you know, branch broke it off so that I could be grafted in. And he's like, well, true enough, but, you know, don't get arrogant or you two could fall, right? Uh, that's the only time that Paul, that in chapter 11, when he's talking to the Gentile interlocutor, that's the only time in the entire book that he actually concedes a point to his interlocutor. If you start in Romans chapter 2 and 3 and keep going through his interlocutor, 6, um, when it's um should we continue to sit in grace may abound no you know it's it's um he never concedes the point because he doesn't accept the premise that they're making right 
the whole idea, well, if our righteousness highlights God's righteousness, then why, you know, why should we just continue in sin, you know? And he's like, uh, no, your condemnation's deserved, right? That's the disposition of the interlocutor. So when the interlocutor comes and says, how can he still find fault for who can resist his will? That's not a sincere objection. Because the, the, in, in Paul's discussion here, the, the unbelieving Israelite has now been placed in the part of Pharaoh, right? Right. Yeah. Just like, just like Pharaoh was hardened to bring about the first Passover, now presently we have the Israelites, ironically, being hardened to bring about the second Passover. Uh, and so in the same way that God is taking an already rebellious person like Pharaoh and blinding him in his rebellion so as to bring about the Passover, so too you've got God hardening um, or blinding already self-righteous Jews in order to bring about the second Passover. They're the ones who cry out, crucify him. In other words, he's using the Israelites in their already self-righteous rebellion to bring about his purpose of redemption through them. They're the ones who would be crying out, okay, if my unrighteousness brings out your righteousness, then why am I still to be blamed? Right. Why are you still blaming me if you've molded and shaped me into a pot that's going to be used for your glory by crying out, crucify him? And then, and that's then what the interlocutor. They, yeah, and then what do they say? They, to, just to try to, because they're trying to embarrass Paul's gospel, right? And why not just claim as they slanderously claim, you know, um, what, you know, where was that in, in chapter three? Um, what if then if... Uh, some were unfaithful with their unfaithful identify God's faithfulness. Absolutely not. Let God be true and everyone a liar is written that you may be justified in your words and, and triumph when you judge. But if our right unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what uh, are we to say? I'm using a human argument. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if by my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say just as some people slanderously claim we say? Paul's saying these Jewish interlocutors slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil so that good may come. Th these are, if you understand in the context of Paul's, uh, you know, it's called a diatribe. Right? Diatribe, it's, it's, yeah. If you understand the context, his interlocutors, he never agrees with them uh, until his interlocutor switches to the, in chapter 11 to the Gentile one, and he only kind of agrees. He's like, yeah, I mean, you're included, but don't get arrogant because you could be cut off too. Uh, so this, uh, this, is not the, this is not the provisionist Leighton asking Calvinist Paul, how is God just for doing things the way he is? No, this is a first century Jew giving an insincere and almost slanderous, remember, nine picks up from three. You know, first they were trusted, then second, third, fourth, that you don't get that till Romans 9, verse 3. So picking up from chapter 3 with his interlocutor, you know, and this is not a sincere objection. It is an objection to try to slander Paul's point. And what Paul's response to this is, nay, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What he's saying is, who are you, Jewish complainer, for whining about being in the role of Pharaoh? Yeah. But well, and you... and I also and no, I also notice that he he goes on to say um, it's not of the one who wills or runs, and they'll often use that to say, okay, it's not of those who have a libertarian free will to choose to follow Christ, but it's uh, those who have been effectually called is what they're reading into that verse, and and in the mind of Paul, no, he's actually he he actually restates his same point in verse thirty and following of the same chapter 
when he says that the Gentiles who did not pursue, in other words, run after righteousness, they did not, uh, they have attained it, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel pursuing, running after a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. In other words, the willing and running, it takes a lot of willpower to keep the, what, 635 commandments of the Jewish law. Um, and it's, it's not by those who will and run to earn and pursue it through their own righteousness, but it, what, so who, who does get it? Whoever, whoever comes in response to the call of God by faith, that's who gets it. And God has every right to establish his covenant with whomever he wants to, even a barbarian Gentile who believes versus the one who's willing and running after it like the Jews were known to be doing at that day. He has mercy on who he has mercy and compassion on who he has, just like he told Moses, just unless Moses think that Moses's persuasive power was what ultimately decided why God didn't wipe out Israel. No, God comes back and says, uh, I will have mercy on whom I... Not that you don't have a good argument, but it's ultimately I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, compassion on who I and he will have mercy on who he wills, old... and he will have he will harden who he wills. And in Romans nine, he's talking about groups, right? He's talking about he's talking about Jews, he's talking about Gentiles. He's talking about God has the right to harden Jews, the unbelieving Jews. He goes on to say that not all Jews. I mean, he he himself. You it's know. simple. It's not going to be yeah. that all all and only Israel is going to be saved, and it's not all and only Gentiles that are going to be saved. There's going to be some Jews and some Gentiles that are going to be saved. Yeah, and and uh, right. until you get to chapter eleven, how you, how are you understand all Israel will be saved? Right, right. I because all be Israel is all is all Israel. The, the Israel in Christ right, will right. be saved. But well, let's go with on with this with this video though, because we we need to get along going. Verse twenty: Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, "Why did you make me like this?" Will it? Does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? So what? If God desired to demonstrate his wrath and uh, make his power known through vessels prepared for destruction, God has a right to put his glory on display, the glory that he gets through his wrath. So what if God wanted to make known the riches of his glory on vessels of mercy? God is glorified in his wrath and he's glorified in his grace. Paul uses this same analogy um, over in 2 Timothy 2.20. He says, now in a large house, not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware, in other words, clay pots, some to honor and some to dishonor. Exactly the same um, illustration that he just used. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he's talking about the sin, he will be a vessel used for honor, sanctified, useful for the master, prepared for every good work. So just like in Jeremiah 18, just because he's talking about an inanimate object, a clay pot, he's not trying to say that a person has no more control over his beliefs and his behavior than does a pot have over its shape in the hands of a potter. What he's saying is that the potter has every right to take an already marred, hardened, self-righteous lump of clay like Pharaoh was, or like Israel is at this day, and he's able to shape and mold it for a, a pot used for honorable or ignoble purposes because he's the sovereign. He can do whatever he wants to. You want to be used for a noble purpose? You know what your responsibility is? Humble yourself and confess your sins. Cleanse yourself, and you will be used for a noble purpose. That's your responsibility yep. as the clay pot. But notice Calvinists won't bring that in because it doesn't fit their narrative. It doesn't fit well, the narrative to look at Jeremiah 18. In well, Isaiah, uh, in, was it Isaiah 29? Uh, Jeremiah's use. 
yeah, there's Jeremiah 18, there's Isaiah 29. There's three different places. One yeah. one use of that is Cyrus, but that's not relevant here um, so much. Um, of course, some of the, uh, the the image here about this from the same lump. He's talking the lump he's talking about is not the lump of humanity. The the lump is he's talking about is the lump of Israel. Remember, not all Israel are Israel. This stick with what Paul's actually talking about in this chapter. Okay. He has the right over the clay to make from the same lump, Israel, both vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor, right? That he's still answering that same objection um, from verse, uh, what is that? Verse uh, 19, the interlocutor, you will say. So what's he making out of these two clumps? Vessels of honor and vessels of uh, mercy. How do I know that I'm not the vessel of dishonor? Maybe do I'm, you believe or are you unbelieving Israel? I do believe. Does that mean I'm part of the good lump? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and there also and there's also the assumption that you remember, have no control says, over which 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 uh, pot you're going to be the honor or dishonor. That's what the, that's why I read from that Second Timothy passage yeah, is because yeah. if you cleanse yourself, you will be used for honorable purpose. You you have yeah. you have some control over that. In other words, to to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor. Right, the same lump. Okay, and then skip down uh, on us the ones he also called. Then he broadens it. Not only from the Jews, not only from that lump that he has the right to divide for his purposes, the unbelieving Jews and right. the, you know vessels on it, but also from the Gentiles. And then he starts to quote Hosea. So he's not talking about picking individual winners and losers for salvation or damnation prior, logically prior to the creation of the temporal universe. Okay, if you want logically prior to the creation of the temporal universe language, you go to Ephesians one before the foundation of the world. Um, if that's, you know, I'm still, some people question what Katabalist Cosmu actually means. But um, I, I take it for fine, logically prior to the creation of the temporal universe. That's no, that's not even in, in, in Romans 8, 29 and 30 about, you know, predestined and all of this stuff, right? This is not talking about picking individuals for salvation or damnation before creation or logically prior to the creation of the temporal universe. That's not what he's on about. But if you tell people in advance that's what he's on about, then that's what's going to be in your mind. And if you just start ignoring, you know, Jeremiah 18 and various passages in Isaiah. Um, now, I do. to be fair, uh, like N.T. Wright, for example, will say that the potter and clay is likely a reference to wisdom of Solomon as opposed to... to other, you know, uh, Thomas Schreiner tries to bring up uh, Sirach, but I, I think that uh, Jonathan Clowens totally shreds their usage here, but it's uh, his and Piper's use here. Um, but if you look at Wisdom and Solomon, I don't think, even though Paul pretty much summarizes three chapters of Williams, uh, uh, of Wisdom of Solomon in Romans chapter 1, 18 through 31, um, I don't think that he's echoing wisdom of solomon's use of the potter and the clay and here's why if you read the potter clay analogy from wisdom of solomon who is the potter it's the idol maker who then just discovers he's just one more clay pot among many so if this is clearly using yahweh as uh, and far be it for me to disagree with nt right he's just wrong here uh 
Yahweh is clearly the potter, not an idol maker. So Paul is also talking about the exile, the exilic period, you know, quoting from Isaiah and all of the, you know, quoting from Hosea. All, all of these passages, it's, he's clearly moved on from the Exodus story now moving into the exile portion, right? He's, he's talked about Moses and Pharaoh, now he's talking about exile. And so I, I think there's definite echoes of Jeremiah 18 and Isaiah 29 and other passages here. With, and he's definitely talking about Israel is the lump that he can use for two different purposes from that same lump. And then he also says, oh, yeah, and not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles as well. So that's what Paul's talking about. Now, if you're talking about Calvinism stuff, you're no longer talking about what Paul's talking about. But, I mean, you're free to do it. Just don't expect me to believe anything that you're saying or that you understand anything about the Bible you're reading. <clears throat> okay, so you've put something up here on the screen. But if you look at verse 22, this is often used as kind of like, here, ha, ha, there, here's Calvinism. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, where have you heard that language already? Well, talking about Pharaoh. He raised you up for this very purpose to make his power known through you. Well, that's exactly what he's doing with Israel now. Remember, both of these people are not uh, you know, sinners because of a decree of God from birth. You're just unilaterally born uh, reprobates that just can't do anything about who they are and what they are. No, these are people who have grown calloused and hardened to the things of God. And so he's using them, making his power known through these already hardened and rebellious vessels. So God's willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known to who? So to Israel and to Pharaoh before him. Okay. So what is he doing with Israel and Pharaoh? He endured with much patience these vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Now that's in the passive meaning he's they've prepared themselves for destruction because of their own rebellion. So, but he's enduring with them with much patience. What? Why would he be enduring with patience? These people. I mean, aren't they just reprobates? What's he enduring with patience? Longing right. to gather them, holding out his hands to them, um, and you know all the things that we see throughout Scripture of him wanting to to save these people. Why is he enduring them with much patience? Um, even though they're vessels of wrath that have prepared themselves for destruction. Okay, we had a little bit of technical difficulty there, and Pritchett had to go to a dentist appointment. He gets grumpy if he has dental problems, and we don't want a grumpy Pritchett. And no, so let's move on to Dale Partridge. Uh, I've actually responded to this uh, video on my program, my broadcast. I, I did a, a, a reply to it. So those that go to sociology101.com, and watch the YouTube channel. Subscribe if you haven't already. Uh, you can watch uh, my full um, response to Dale Partridge if you'd like. All right, sounds good. Here we go. John MacArthur recently said, I became a Calvinist because the Bible gave me no other option. Charles Spurgeon said, Calvinism is the gospel and nothing else. So why do so many people reject Calvinism? Because it requires us to realize that we have no involvement in the cause of our salvation. It's the biblical truth that we don't choose Christ, but Christ chooses us. Calvinism proves that salvation is not about persuasion. You can't convince people to come to Christ. No, the Savior does all the saving. Now, the five points of Calvinism were not invented by John Calvin. It was simply Calvin who communicated these biblical doctrines more clearly than anyone else before him. They teach that all people are born enslaved to sin, hating God. They teach the biblical truth that all people deserve hell and nobody wants to be saved. They teach that God is not obligated to save any of us, but they also teach that God, in his mercy, before the foundation of the world, elected to save some, namely that God will save his people and will leave the rest to justice. But there is no injustice 
justice here, just justice and mercy. In the same way that God elected the Israelites and not the Philistines, he elects the people of his church and leaves the rest to his wrath. There is no wrong here. God is God and can exercise justice upon whomever he wills and can save whomever he wills. So is Calvinism biblical? Yes. It's the biblical idea that without God loving me, electing me, predestining me, calling me, justifying me, and preserving me, I would perish. This is why Paul can say, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Yeah, I mean, everybody thinks their belief, I mean, all Christians think their beliefs are biblical. Um, so it's, it's somewhat question begging to assume that, you know, I must be right because the Bible teaches this. That's the debate. You know, we, when you question beg, you're assuming the very point up for debate. And so you can't, you can't do that. You have to establish it. And, I, and of course, I don't know uh, that Dell is necessarily trying to question beg. He's just presenting what he believes is a biblical truth. And it happens to be more in line with Calvinistic theology. He starts with appealing to authority, quoting from Spurgeon. MacArthur and others. Um, it, obviously, I, we could name just as many well-known scholars like C.S. Lewis or A.W. Tozer or Adrian Rogers or Herschel Hobbes or you know a host of other people who did not believe Calvinistically, who have just as much Bible knowledge, who have preached just as many sermons, who have exegeted just as many texts, who have produced just as many commentaries, who have come to different conclusions than 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 those men have. Um, when he quotes Spurgeon uh, saying, you know, Calvinism is just the gospel. Um, kind of taken out of context a little bit because I don't even think that Spurgeon believed in the way that most modern day Calvinists believe. Uh, back in his day, the bigger debate over Calvinism was the perseverance of the saints or eternal security issues. He had uh, also replaced Gill in his uh, in the Tabernacle Church where he was, and Gill was a very high, some even say hyper-Calvinist based upon some of his teachings. And so when uh, Spurgeon first took over uh, in that in that role, he sounded a lot more Calvinistic than he did later in his later years. Uh, in fact, there's quite a few quotes that seem to fly in the face of Calvinism uh, from uh, from. He's Spurgeon. trying to bridge so, bridge. The, it sounds like you're trying to say that following this other pastor who was far more Calvinistic, he was trying to kind of bridge the bridge the gap there in the ministry styles. But ultimately, later it softened up a little bit. Well, I mean, you know, all of us have shifted in our views over the years with different, I mean, you think of MacArthur's shift, you know, in his way of teaching, he sounded a lot less Calvinistic back in the seventies and eighties based upon his sermons than he does now. Uh, he can, he kind of drifted a particular direction. Um, well, my argument is that if you study, uh, Spurgeon's sermons and his teachings over the course of his life, he seemed to be a lot more of a staunch, harder Calvinist earlier in life than he was later in life. Um, and that isn't, it's neither here nor there. He's not an authority, um, no more so than, and than MacArthur is, um, these are just, you know, men just like anybody else who make mistakes. Uh, as my, uh, my hermeneutics professor used to say, commentators are commentators. They're just common people who have common opinions. Um, and many <laughs> of us have uh, commentators. Yes. So, um, there's the appeal to authority. Um, you know, he says that, you know, Calvinism, you know, I came to Calvinism because the Bible gave me no other option. Well, of course it gave you other options. Uh, you know, the same option that all these other scholars have taken. The, the first 400 years of the Christian church didn't take your option. And so, yes, there are other options. You may not consider them viable options, or you may not believe that they're truthful biblical options, but you can't pretend like they're not other uh, good interpretive options. But when you out say that, Layton, it takes all of the authoritative rhetoric out of the statement, <laughs> the Bible gave me no other option. And now you're just saying, yeah. I concluded Calvinism was true. <laughs> no, it's, 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 it, and you're, pen, you're pinpointing what it is. It's rhetoric. 
It's mm-hmm. if I can if I can come across with a bombastic authority and absolute certainty, then it somehow makes my my argument stronger. I think just the opposite is the case. I I, I actually take those who who come with a little bit more of humility, saying, well, you know, here's here's a way some scholars take this, and here's the way other scholars take this, um, and based upon my interpretation based upon this reason and this reason, I lean more towards this particular interpretation over this one for these good reasons. Um, I, I tend to listen to somebody like that as a much more reasonable person than somebody who's just dogmatically and bombastically claiming that their view is the only possible view. And it's just so clear. It's just so biblical. Anybody can see this. Everybody understands that this is the way it is. Those are the kinds of people I typically roll my eyes at and move on because they're obviously not willing to, to give any even credence. So that's so what's so ironic and baffling about Dale's statement of asking the question, why do so many people reject Calvinism? Well, if Calvinism is true, the only reason that any Christian would reject it is because God decreed for them to. Yes. Uh, because God decrees whatsoever comes to pass. And what dec- what is a decree on Calvinism? It's, it's what God has causally um, purposed and brought to pass by his sovereign decree. And the and according to Westminster and the London Baptist Confession of Faith, God decrees whatsoever comes to pass. Um, now, they may say he uses secondary causation to do this, whatever that means, and however they want to explain that philosophically. Um, and, and a lot of different arguments can go in that, many of which you and I have had discussions about over the years. But what, what is key to the answer that Dell is asking is why do most Christians reject Calvinism if Calvinism is true because God decreed for them to. So, what God so wants. It's either, yeah, it's either because God decreed it or because we have good discernment. It's one of the two. There's no other real option if you think about it. The reason Christians reject Calvinism is either because God determined for us to reject Calvinism or we have good discernment because Calvinism is actually wrong and we're discerning that it's not biblical. It's one of the two options. Yeah, so when people criticize you and other people for saying, well, why did God determine me to do that? Like some Calvinists might say, what you just posted, Leighton, is such a man-centered, godless, you know, just God-hating sort of perspective. Not that anyone said those sort of things to you, but something along those lines. And you you say back to them regularly, well, why did God cho- why did God elect for me to be that way? Why did God determine me to be that way? And people roll their eyes at that. Oh, come on. It's an actual question. And in fact, that very question that causes you to roll your eyes, God determined that I would ask that question. Right. And, and it's a shorthand way of making uh, Tim Stratton's, um, you know, uh, free will argument that he makes. Um, Tim Stratton teaches with us here at, at Trinity Seminary. And so you should go to Trinity, uh, Tr- Trinity and take a course with uh, Tim Stratton. Uh, but he, he, he what, what's his argument called? The free will I, don't, the I know you use the argument. argument. I think he uses free the free thinking argument. argument, and I don't know if this is the one you're thinking of specifically, but you might be talking about the one where, um, if determinism is true and you don't have libertarian freedom, then true knowledge goes out the window because the way we arrive at what we can know is based on a rational process, and on determinism, that rational process doesn't exist because rationality involves us thinking through various options and arriving at the one that we deem to be the most rational or the one that makes the most sense. But if determinism is true, all of that is out of your control. All of that has been determined for you before you ever started. So whatever you end up believing, and since we know that Calvinists will admit, yes, some Christians uh, end up believing the wrong thing, even about this issue, and 
uh, P- strong determinists who understand these things who are Calvinists will say, yes, God determined you to believe the wrong thing for his good pleasure. For whatever reasons that he has, he has that in mind. And then so the so then the question becomes, OK, I know that God. OK, I know now that determinism is true and that God's in control of that and that God Whatever I think, whatever I feel, whatever I do is determined by God uh, to be that way. So and I and since I know that he determines some people to be wrong, how can I ever claim to know anything? Because anything I believe determined to believe that. And even the best rejections of that argument are more of, well, God, God doesn't do it that way. God does it some other way. And and you go, okay, well, just for the sake of the suppositional argument, let's suppose that the mad scientist does it exactly the way that you're supposing God does it. Does it change the argument? It's still the mad scientist determining the desires, thoughts, and actions of the, the person, regardless of what mechanism or what secondary causation is used in the process. It doesn't change the point of the argument, as far as I can Especially tell. since and God the, does determine some people to be wrong about theological issues like Calvinism. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and Dale, Dale goes on to talk about uh, persuasion and he kind of uses it as a derogatory, you know, like it's not something it's, that it really is. Well, what's apologetics all about? Uh, the, the Bible mentions the word persuasion almost three times more often than it does the word predestination. And so Paul for persuades for Dale, in the, the synagogue, he persuades. Yeah. And I think that well, is and, apologetics. What does it mean to, per, how is he persuading Jews? Well, talking about the resurrection of Jesus. How is he persuading Gentiles? Well, we see in Acts 17, he's declaring that there's one God who made everything, despite whatever they think. And there was a man he raised from the dead, who, and he's going to judge you. He's bringing judgment. The, this is all apologetics. Yeah. Well, in, in Acts 28, he talks about, he gathers with them and, and, and tries to persuade them all day long. And even says some are convinced and some refuse to believe. Uh, and that's when he goes on to pronounce that judgment over them. You're ever seeing but never perceiving, which is not a condition from birth. It's a condition, it says, because they close their eyes, because their hearts have grown calloused. Otherwise, they might see, hear, understand, and turn. Therefore, I even take the message to the Gentiles, proving it's not a, a condition of everybody from birth, but this is a condition of a heart that's grown hardened because of their rebellion and they, their closing of their own eyes. Not that they were just born without eyes and they just were born reprobates that couldn't do anything other. And so Paul is trying to persuade them. Why? Because he he loves them, one, just like it says in, in Romans 9, 1 through 3, willing to give up his own salvation for them. And he actually holds out hope because he he thinks that they have a hope of being saved. He, he really does believe anyone can be saved. So your, your theology will drive your methodology. And so I bet you Dell doesn't probably spend much time trying to persuade unbelievers to become believers because he thinks that's going to happen by unilateral working of God through some effectual irresistible means. He's just got to walk in, do his thing, say his piece, and move on and let the Spirit, quote-unquote, do the rest of the work. Because if he tries to stay all day long trying to persuade them and trying to pray for them and trying to continue to, to grapple with them and show them evidences and all the kinds of things that apologists do, then that would be flying in the face of his theology. And, and, and that's, I think, like where to, the danger To a certain degree, Leighton, I think about as a preacher who's done so many evan- you know, evangelistic events and things like that, I am I am not writing what I consider to be a good rhetorical theological document that then I'm going to reproduce from the pulpit and just hope God does his thing. Obviously, it's up to God if someone gets saved. But since I believe in libertarian freedom, when I when I write a sermon, when I approach the pulpit, I want to do 
everything I can to engage that person, to draw yeah. them to a point of repentance, to convict them about sin, because I believe that they could really make the wrong decision here and it'd be a libertarianly yeah. wrong decision. Right, right. Which, which is necessary for blameworthiness in my estimation. In other words, how can, how can a person who's born unable to believe the gospel be blamed for not believing the gospel? It's, right. it's like somebody born without eyes being blamed for not seeing. It doesn't make any rational sense to blame somebody who's born without the capacity to see for not seeing, just like it's, it's irrational to blame somebody without the capacity to believe for not believing. It doesn't, it doesn't make any, it's, it's, and why would Jesus marvel at their lack of belief if they're born unable to believe? It'd be like, you oh, you're, you're not able, you, you fishermen, you're not able to dive under the water and breathe underwater. That, that's marveling to me. That just baffles me. You're not able to breathe underwater. Why? Because God made you from birth, not able to breathe underwater like he does the fish. Why would you be marvel at that? The, the reason he marvels at it is because even despite all that he's shown them, all the evidences, all the, he marvels at the fact that they are so uh, unwilling to believe. And then just the opposite, whenever he sees what the centurion, where he marvels at the faith of the, the centurion, um, he, he, in other words, he's surprised by how much faith he has. And it, it seems to me that God would just, Jesus would just look up to heaven and say, Lord, why don't you give him more faith? You know, instead yeah, of getting yeah. mad at him for not having faith, or why would he what, just look up to heaven and say, God, thank you for giving this guy so much faith. Uh, yeah. You, you should probably spread that out a little bit more evenly because you give this guy a bunch of it. You don't give these people hardly any of it. Well, and, um, and this is similar God's the one distributing you, this faith or something like that. This reminds me of what you say about, uh, the, the, um, messianic secret uh and like where jesus slips away so we want to make sure he doesn't believe so he put bl right. a blindfold on or whatever his and natural said his that natural lot. condition his natural condition to be unable to believe um is not quite uh, powerful enough we've also got to use parabolic language uh we, we've also got to use a spirit of stupor We've also right. got to blind them from the truth by telling the disciples not to tell anybody who I am yet. We've got to use all these other means to keep them from doing something they were naturally born unable to be born unable to do. It, it just doesn't make any, any like that alone sense right there sits really bad. If I was a Calvinist theologian, I would either not be anymore, or I might be, I might make this my primary research project because this is a that, very that's what big led me, I mean, That point is what led me out of Calvinism, really. That, people always ask, what point was it? That, that was the major point that was just the itch inside my brain that kind of got, okay, why is he using parables to keep them from believing for a time when they're born unable to believe? Just, just keep them in I mean, their that heart. About just don't, just, just that... don't, yeah, don't regenerate them and they're not going to believe. And it's that simple. You don't need to use parables to, to hide the truth from them. Uh, or to keep them in the dark, send a spitter of stupor to them, or all the kinds of things that the Bible talks about how God might, uh, you know, what what means God might use to blind somebody. But the, the the other thing he goes to Dale mentions in there is about being enslaved to sin. Uh, you see this with Martin Luther's book on the bondage of the will, with his debate with uh, Erasmus, was it? Um, th this is another conflation of the Calvinist that basically what they're arguing is that being enslaved to sin equals somehow an inability, a moral inability to confess that you're enslaved to sin and, and receive the help being offered by Christ through the gospel. And again, it's just the non sequitur that we talked about before. Um, it, just because you're in bondage to something, like I might be in bondage to, um, uh, you know, as an alcoholic, it might be in bondage to drinking alcohol. They can't stop drinking alcohol on their own. It's impossible. 
Does that therefore mean because they're in bondage to alcohol, therefore they can't confess that fact and accept the, the, the offer of being restored through going into rehab? Well, of course, we know of many, uh, even pagans who have been addicted to alcohol, who have humbly confessed their addiction, uh, admitted they need help and check into rehab so as to get help. So just because someone's enslaved or in bondage, you'll also hear the word at enmity, um, like, hey, we're enemies of God, as if the word enemy automatically just entails you can't respond positively to a message that's calling you to reconciliation right. from your enmity. Um, and that, that's what the, the gospel is. It's, it's, it's a message sent to enemies to call them to be reconciled. So why, why saying over and over again, you're an enemy of God, does that how, somehow prove the inability of an enemy to confess that he's an enemy, humble, him, humble himself and accept the, the grace being offered to him through the gospel? Again, these are just words that, that Calvinists read into. They have baggage that are put on top of these words that make them somehow be effectual. So you're, you're an effectual enemy of God. You're effectually in bondage to the point where you can't even confess it and admit it, even in light of the law and the gospel. And this is just where we're going, okay, where in the Bible does it teach this? I mean, we want to be biblical people here. We, we, we don't want to fight you, Calvinist, when you're talking about a biblical you know, concept. But being enslaved to sin and being in bondage to sin or being an enemy of God, none of those even remotely connote the idea of an incapacity to humble yourself and confess that you're in bondage, that you're uh, enslaved, and that you're an enemy of God. Well, um, and that's what we're asking uh, you for. Obviously, a slave can wish to be free, and a sick man can wish to be well. Let many people in the in the world today who are enemies become convinced that they should no longer right. be enemies. Right. My, my, my wife's a marriage counselor and she has people who come into her office who are literally just at each other's throats. They hate each other. They're animosity with each other. And then over the, the weeks and months, sometimes years of therapy and counseling, they reconcile with one another. And some of them aren't even believers in Jesus. And so you've got people who don't have the Holy Spirit helping them, who don't have Jesus helping them, who are able to humbly confess their wrongdoing and be reconciled with another person they are they were once at enmity with. You see it with fathers and sons and mothers and daughters all the time where they're at enmity with each other because one of them wronged the other one in some way who have humbly confessed their wrongdoing and have become reconciled with one another. Unregenerate and they have, and they, have, they don't have the Bible or God or the Holy Spirit helping care. them do this. How do they have the capacity? to humbly confess their, their wrongdoing and be reconciled with each other. And yet God decreed them to be born unable to do that with him. You can do it with everybody else out there in the world, but you can't do it with your creator. And by the way, that's the one person you need to be able to do it with in order to have salvation and order to have to, to fulfill the, the very reason you were created. The chief yeah. end of man is to love God and glorify him forever, even in the Calvinistic catechisms. You can't fulfill your chief end with God. And that's about all you can God decreed. Do. <laughs> you can do it with anybody else, but the one person you can't do it with is the one person you're required to do it with. And that your your very purpose for existence is, and God decreed for you to be born unable to do it with him. You're just going, when you really, really back away from this whole systematic way of thinking, it's it, that this is one of the reasons I, I, I'm almost, I'm baffled sometimes that I was once a Calvinist, that I held to it for 10 years with a cognitive dissonance of all these issues, not seeing the problems behind every one of these claims. And, and ultimately, the, 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 how men could be blameworthy underneath. And, and Dell even gets to that. He even he, There's no injustice here. 
Um, and God's not obligated to save anybody. Well, nobody's arguing that God's obligated to save anybody. God's not obligated to save anybody. But the fact that he chooses to save those who humble themselves and confess, that's completely merciful of God. He's not obligated to do that. He chooses to do that. Just like the father's not obligated to take the son back whenever he comes home from the pigsty. He's not obligated to do that. He does it because he's a gracious and good God. And so our faith doesn't obligate God. Um, and so the fact that we even believe that we have the, the ability to humble ourselves and come home from the pigsty in faith doesn't mean that we're obligating God to save us. God chooses to save us graciously. He's not obligated to do that. And and the injustice that we we think that Calvinism um, holds inherently within its system is not that the fact that God's choosing to save some people and not others. He has every right to do that, even if he wants to do it unilaterally or arbitrarily. Um, he can do it that way if he wants to, it just doesn't seem very Christ-like. You know, Jesus seems to say to lay down your life for your enemies and love your enemies and stop on the side of the road and help your enemies, not to pass by them on the other side of the road. And so it's not so much about us saying it's unjust of God to do it Calvinistically. We're saying it's not very much like Christ to do it Calvinistically. It doesn't seem like what Jesus taught us to do. I remember you and I, and I don't remember who else was there, but you and I were at a restaurant uh, and, uh, Jonathan may have been there. I can't remember who all was there. It was before one of your debates. So Jonathan was probably there, but I think there were maybe some others around the table. And I remember you, you making a statement that I wrote down and have used many times before. And, and I'll paraphrase it now, but it was something to the effect of there's some arguments that don't need to be refuted. They just need to be clearly stated or some positions that don't need to be refuted. They just need to be clearly stated that so people will intuitively know to reject them for what they are. And, and so much of what Calvinism entails falls underneath that, I, I think, that banner of, of just once it's clearly made known to even those who adhere to it. I, I spend a lot of time trying to help Calvinists understand the claims of their own scholars because they, they haven't taken the time to read them. I've even had Matt Slick and others tell me, I don't, I haven't never read John Calvin. I don't care what John Calvin says. I, you know, I'm a Bible guy. And I, well, well, you know, by looking at the scholars, you, you can see what this system has led to and the, the entailments of the system, because some within the Calvinistic framework have adopted those entailments. Some people reject those entailments, um, logically it seems, or rationally it seems, but by looking at the, the, the claims of the best of the best scholars from this worldview, you can see some of those entailments because some of them own it and, and some of them aren't willing to own those entailments. And so you can look at the whole of the system. And sometimes it's just someone like myself coming along and explaining, okay, here's what compatibilism actually means. And I, I've had, I've, I've talked to, very, and I, I don't want to name names because I don't want to besmirch the person, but you would know who I was talking about if I mentioned their names. Well-known apologists, uh, who have big YouTube channels and big books out there and everything else, who, who thought that by saying that they're a compatibilist, that they were denying determinism, theistic determinism. Yeah. And right. I was going, compatibilism is saying that theistic determinism is compatible with human responsibility. That's what compatibilism is That's referring compatibilism. to. That you can't deny determinism and say that you're a compatibilist. That doesn't make any sense. And I was explaining this to a, a trained philosopher and theologian apologist. And I was just, I was baffled the fact that I was having, it was kind of surreal me explaining to this. He's my senior. He's older than me. He's been doing this a lot. And I was trying to explain to him, you can't say you're a compatibilist and deny de theistic determinism. It doesn't make any sense. And so I, it seemed like I feel like I'm, I'm spending a lot of time trying to explain to Calvinists the entailments of their own system 
and the beliefs of their own system because they themselves haven't, for whatever reason, thought through them to the point to, to know why we're rejecting them in the first place or why we have a problem with them. And, and like you well, said, I think wisely, you've just got to lay it out clearly for them so that they know why we reject it. Well, I got that from Norman Geisler, the late great apologist who died a few years ago. And I actually had a chance to have dinner with him here in Evansville when he spoke at our commencement. Twice I had dinner with him. And it was like I was with, you know, some rock star from my perspective. And uh, he said a couple of things that I really have always remembered. One was that he said that he eats, uh, that he reads um, atheist propaganda books for his devotional every morning because it makes him feel closer to God, how horrible their arguments are. And then <laughs> the, 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 the second thing he said was the quote that That's you funny. referenced, and I'll, I'll paraphrase it too, but basically what he was saying was, with some things, I don't have to argue with you. I just have to make sure everyone heard what you said. <laughs> you know, everyone understood that's, what you said that, because that that's the thing. Exactly it, I, yes. Well, and there's also, as we talk about a lot, there's a, Calvinism is not monolithic. Um, even of the three Calvinists that you just played in those clips, all of them have various views that differ from each other. And so you're never going to represent, uh, you know, properly the, every single Calvinist in, in every, in every way, because all of them have different ways of, of describing what they believe. But but even the lowest of the low Calvinist, as they say, you know, versus the high hyper type of Calvinists that are really, really highly deterministic and just, you know, kind of hardcore five or seven pointers, as some people call it themselves and, and, and versus the three point, you know, kind of quasi I'm kind of a moderate kind of modified Calvinist. This is this that it, it all comes down to really the, the major the major things of if you're born unable to believe the Bible. I'm unable to put your trust in Christ. If you're born unable to do that, which the lowest of the low Calvinist affirms that concept. Okay. That, that, that's the basics of Calvinism. You're born unable to believe the truth of the gospel. Unless God picked you before you're born, which is the you unconditional election. You were picked before you were born and you were irresistibly graced, whatever that looks like. It could be called effectual calling. Some people call it regeneration. Some people call it different things. Okay. But God has to unilaterally cause you to change your desires somehow to make you want him. That Those three points are the ba basic foundational claims of the Calvinistic worldview. If you hold to those views, I don't see how rationally you're not affirming theistic determinism. Because basically you're saying God determined your will from birth to be a God hater until he effectually works on you to change your will to be a God lover. Now, you can be like a Greg Kokel type of Calvinist that says you can make all kinds of other libertarianly free choices about the clothes you wear, the food you eat. But the one choice you can't make is the choice to believe in God unless he effectually calls you. Um, and, and he's more of a very moderate, low Calvinist in that regard. Which but three still, did you say? I, the second, fourth, T, fifth Well, ones? really, the T, U, and the I are the three that I just now pointed out. You're born unable to want God unless he wants you. He unconditionally chose you. And he irresistibly makes you want him back. But but if that's that, true, Leighton, that, that, then perseverance of the saints will entail. And so will limited atonement because he died for the people that he would raise and nobody else. Yeah. And those two views are more of the logical, like L, for example, uh, D David uh, uh, Allen says it's the it's the doctrine in search of a text. It's more of a logical entailment of Calvinism that if if God only chose certain people, to irresistibly grace, then he's going to only die for those people. World, the 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 serpent lifted in the desert is what Jesus compared himself to. 
just like the serpent was lifted for the whole of Israel, that whosoever looked to the provision in faith would be healed. So too Christ is lifted up for the sins of the world that whosoever looks to him in faith will be healed. So that means the provision is provided for anybody. So imagine, you know, I always use the analogy to say, okay, imagine one of the snake bitten Jews back in the old Testament times and refusing to look to the serpent because, ah, that's just a superstition. I'm not going to walk back over to where the serpent is. I'm on this camping trip. I don't want to walk all the way three miles, four miles back that way. I'm just going to take my chances. I don't think this is venomous. I'll be fine. And later that night he dies of snake venom and he gets up to heaven and he says, well, God, why didn't you provide healing for me? What's God going to say? I did provide healing for you. You refused to believe. You refused to look to my provision for healing. That's your fault, not mine. It's not a lacking of provision. It's not a lacking of the the, the one who made the provision. It's a, it's a lacking of your willingness to look to the provision. And so too, those who perish, as Paul said, they perish because they refuse to love the truth so as to be saved. Notice he doesn't say they perish because of what Adam did. They perish because of how many sins they committed. They perish because they rejected the truth. And so the truth has been provided and the way has been provided for every single person. Only they perish because they refuse that provision. Um, and so, you know, Calvinists will often paint this false dichotomy like um, either, either God makes salvation possible or he actually saves. And that's what you're talking about before. It sounds this pious, you know, oh, wow, I want to believe he actually saves, not just he makes salvation possible. Well, that's a false dilemma. It's a false dichotomy. He does it's actually either, save. Yeah, it's not either or. It's both and. He makes salvation possible for everyone, and he actually saves whosoever looks to him in faith. It's not It's not either or. It's, it's both and. And most of the arguments, most, not all, most of the arguments that Calvinists make against provisionism, the view that I hold to, are based on a fallacious concept or an idea. They're fallacious arguments to begin with. They're a false dichotomy. They're begging the question, assuming, you know, true, the very point up for debate. Um, they're they're uh, ad hominem, uh, you know, accusing the person who believes it as not being uh, a Bible believer or really wanting to understand the scriptures or being, you know, too soft-willed to accept the truth of God's word. You know, they're about the person versus the doctrine. Um, most of the arguments brought against me in my experience have been uh, fallacious arguments in, to begin with. And, that, and you got to just call that out for what it is. Well, Leighton, I sure appreciate you being with us on the show today. This has been fantastic. We need to do this more often, but I feel like I'm asking a lot of you to come on here because you're oh, no, my pleasure. Your time is valuable, but you're one of my closest friends. We don't get to talk as much as we, we should, but I love you. I'm so glad that you're here. I can't imagine a theology geek out there who's not a Calvinist who would not want after this episode to click in the link trinitysim.edu and begin courses and start taking a degree program that will give you a lot of latent flowers. Um, before I, before we go though, I, I do want to say this, this, this has nothing to do with anything we've been talking about Leighton, but we have a listener called the domestic engineer. And this is a woman who I think is a homeschool mom. I could be wrong. And she's been watching our videos for quite a while. And this is what she said, and I thought this was good enough that it should be read. Oh, hey, not sure if I said here yet, one of my older daughters, as in the 12-year-old, uh, older, the oldest is 13, youngest seven, and the boy five, I digress, Ruby and I got baptized on Sunday. They had given their life to Christ and been baptized. 
Rosie and Lincoln are going next. Maggie is still mulling it over with dad. It's because of Mike Winger and y'all that I eventually gave up my atheism or woo-woo crystal spirit science beliefs. My past is complicated. Anyhow, I just love y'all and wanted to share. And I want the domestic engineer to know we love you too. And that is so encouraging. And guess what? Here's somebody else that you could start listening to. And that's Leighton Flowers at Soteriology 101. Leighton, anything else you want to say before we go? You're, you're one of my closest friends. I'd die for you. Uh, I believe that. Yeah. I, I hope I don't have to prove it. But um, <laughs> anything else you want to say before we go? My, the feeling is mutual, Braxton. You're a dear friend of mine. appreciate the work that you do on Trinity Radio, as well as uh, the president of uh, Trinity Bible Theological Seminary and where I have the opportunity to work. And, 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 you know, I, I will say that I am a little bit jealous of you and you may not know this, but I've, I've kind of been fighting some envy this entire broadcast of your beard. I mean, oh, the, the beard. Okay. No, I not, not the, the beard. Yeah. The, yeah. Not, not the balding. Yeah. I've got, I've got that going on too. I'm, I'm working on that. But Dude, that, you've that got beard, the man. makings of a fantastic beard there. You just got to get your wife on board. And my wife. Start- yeah. My wife does not like it any longer than this right here. In fact, even, even this may be a little long for her. She likes it really more stubble even so yeah see i described that look with my wife this morning and she said do not ever do that again you look so much better now so but Leighton, i love you so much thanks for coming on the show we'll have you on soon again everybody check out soteriology 101 and we'll see you next time on trinity radio 